chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. I'm so excited to have Judy Syndicuse on today's show. Judy is the CEO of Capital Innovators, a venture capital firm and accelerator with over 100 portfolio companies. Judy, I am so excited that you're here today with me on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. And we also have our friend, Mr. Bob Putnam, to thank, don't we, for connecting the two of us. We do. This is fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for our listening audience to hear your story. So we got a lot to talk about, so let's just go in and jump in. Talk to me a little bit about how you grew up. Uh, I grew up here in St. Louis. I lived in Bridgeton. In fact, my neighborhood was one of those that was taken out for that fabulous runway that we built that doesn't oh. get used so much. Oh, my. <laughs> but that's a story for another time. Uh, no, I grew up there. I went to Hazelwood West. I know everybody in St. Louis wants to know where you went to high school. Mm-hmm, so Hazelwood do. West. I went from Hazelwood West to SMU undergrad, so Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and got a degree in mechanical engineering and uh, and math, and then went on to Harvard Law School. There's a lot there. So what took you to SMU? What a beautiful campus. I love the SMU campus it in Dallas. It is, and, and it's funny because at that age, right, we do use weird things to decide where we go to college, right. and the beauty of the campus was one of the things. Also, and this is going to date myself, but the show Dallas was really very popular at that time. Oh, <laughs> and I, I thought, Dallas. oh, I'll go to Dallas. The and, Ewings, you know, uh, right? Was it the Ewings? <laughs> the Ewings, the right, Ewings. in South Fork, right? Yes. Uh, so that was definitely a little bit of a draw at that age. But, of course, the biggest draw was I was offered a scholarship to their engineering school. Yeah, so what took you to engineering? Did you grow up with, uh, you know, people in your family that were engineers? No, not at all. My dad was in sales and my mom was, uh, well, she did a lot of different things. I would say an administrative assistant mostly, but it's interesting because of what I'm doing now, I should probably mention that my mom used to do things work for herself a lot, whether it was sell encyclopedias door to door or sell hearing aids door to door. She was bold and did a lot. So I think I got a lot from my mom in that regard. It sounds like it. So you went to SMU, you got a degree in mechanical engineering. So did you go into corporate and practice mechanical engineering? Or? Not at all. No. Uh, so you ask, you know, why engineering? I think when you go to college, you should major in something that you really enjoy and that you're really good at. And so I really enjoyed math and science. Physics was my favorite and I was good at it. 
And that's what I discovered Mm -hmm. in high school. And it was kind of always that way. I remember even being maybe seven years old and watching my big brother do math problems from school. And I made him teach me how to do this math that was a couple of years advanced for me because I just loved it that much. I know that's a little dorky, but that's that's kind of what drove me. And, uh, And so I majored in that knowing that I would never be an engineer I just needed to major in something, Mm -hmm. and so that's why. Well, and we talk about that a lot today, women in STEM. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of doing that a long time ago, right? Right, right. So that's wonderful. So you got a degree in mechanical engineering. Why Harvard and why law? Like I said, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and so that necessitated grad school so I could put off that decision for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily think I wanted to be an attorney, although some people who listen to me argue with them just for the fun of it right. uh, used to <laughs> say you would make a good attorney. But that isn't really why. I thought that a law degree would just give me a good basis for whatever it was I decided to do whenever I came to that decision. Sure. But I thought, importantly, that would only work if I got into a really top law school. Mm-hmm. That's probably not true now. But at the time, that's what was in the back of my head was I need to work really hard so I can get into a top 10 law school so that this degree would be meaningful for whatever it is I decide to do, even if it's not practice law. Mm -hmm. So I did. I worked very hard at my engineering degree and tried to make really good grades, be very involved and did well on the LSAT and just got super lucky. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, well, getting into one of those schools, luck has so much to do with it. Luck, and, and you obviously had the brains <laughs> to get into. So were there a lot of women in your class? 26% okay. were women mm-hmm. at the time, even though, even then, as now, more women applied to law school than men. So even though more women had applied, there were 26%. Just to give you a little background, at that time, there were no tenured female professors. There were very few female professors, period, much less tenured. Mm -hmm. It was during an age where I know that my classmates participated in a sit-in to try and get one of our constitutional law professors tenured. It was also the time when we were really battled for shared use of the pronoun she so that when professors were talking about judges or attorneys, they were talking about she as often as they were talking about he so that we could picture women in black robes as a judge, for Mm -hmm. instance. Really important movements were happening at that time. Once you graduated from Harvard with your law degree, did you ever practice or did you just jump in? Because I want to talk about this. You're an entrepreneur <laughs> at heart. That's right. <laughs> kind I of am like an your entrepreneur. mom, I think. You know? Well, you know, it's funny when you talk about, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? It wasn't until about, oh, maybe five years ago, I recalled this distant memory. And I was probably about 10 years old. And was asked, I remember in school being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, entrepreneur. But what's really funny about that is I didn't have a clue what that what word that meant. <laughs> I thought it was this really it was cool, cool word. word. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-syllable, hard to spell. Right. <laughs> kind of French, right? Right. And I really got stumped because the next question was, what kind of entrepreneur do you want to be? And it's like, oh, um, I don't even know <laughs> because what it I didn't is. know that is that. so funny. and so it's funny that that's what I ended up being at the end of the day. 
from law school, I went back to Dallas to work in a okay. large law firm, okay. uh, Gardier and Wynn. It has over 200 attorneys or had over 200 attorneys at the time. I think they still do. I made it almost a whole year working as an attorney <laughs> before I left because I had an idea for a business. Oh, so what was your first idea? That actually wasn't my first business. Oh, My wow. first business I started when I was in college and I sold it to go to law school. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so I did not know this about you. So tell us about the business that you had when you were in college. So if I share this with you publicly, this will literally be the first time I publicly told somebody. Is that right? It's one of those little known facts. (laughs) I feel honored. So another little known fact is in 1982, I was Missouri's Miss Teen. And that led to the idea for the business. Okay. Because at that time, that was a state franchise. They just had a state pageant. Mm -hmm. And I went to the owner of that franchise and suggested that she should have local franchises. And she said, you're right. And I created St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, and then I went to Kansas City, Kansas as well and created four local Miss Teen franchises. My goodness, that is just crazy, Judy. It is crazy. crazy. (laughs) That is crazy. So I was flying out every weekend when I was going to college and emceeing pageants and... uh, my mother helped me with those. I was thinking, you know, that took courage, but really maybe not. You just had, you were bold. You were bold and confident <laughs> or, that you could do this or, or naive, or, right? You right, know, right. I didn't know any better. Right. Naivety sometimes is a good thing, a I think. It sure, sure can be. Sure. The business idea that I came up with when I was practicing law was for Bride and Groom Magazine, and that was the first regional bridal publication. There's plenty now, but mm-hmm. uh, back then... Again, I'll date myself. That was back in 1990. There were no regional bridal publications. Meanwhile, you mentioned, you know, what it was like for in the field uh, for women in that day and age. And what I noticed was that I was trying to bill every six minutes of my time as an attorney and Mm. planning a wedding was ridiculously hard. Mm -hmm. I was living in a city that I wasn't familiar with. I didn't have a mom or a sister or an aunt or even friends really to to help help me with this. Mm -hmm. And back then we didn't have the internet. So all I had was the yellow pages. Right. <laughs> and to give the listeners an idea of what that's like, there were 300 bakeries listed in Dallas in the yellow pages. But that could be any, that could be like a Panera. Uh, sure. You know, who knows if they bake wedding cakes right, or not. Right. Or where they're located mm-hmm. in the city. Or if they do bake wedding cakes, are they any good? You know, is it the kind of cake that I would want? And after spending hours on the phone just trying to determine who does and who doesn't and where you're located and when can I come see you, I thought, i got to make up all these billable hours. It was nuts. Mm -hmm. And I figured there must be something out there that's a better solution. And when I went to look for it, there wasn't. Mm -hmm. They had these national publications that were like dress China and honeymoon catalogs, because those are the only things about a wedding that are national in scope. Everything else is local, where mm-hmm. you're going to get married, who you use as a florist, who's your right. photographer. Mm-hmm. All of these things are very local in nature, so a national publication can't possibly help you. Exactly, right. mm-hmm. exactly. The reason why I'm going into all of this is because this is a problem that I solved for myself and then turned that into a business And in my mind, that is the best way to start your own business. I agree with that. I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, and it's usually seeing a need, 
and then figuring out, okay, how I'm going to solve this challenge. That's a great way to come up. And, and you know that there's a need because you've gone through it, right? Right, right. So how long did you have the Bride and Groom magazine? How, how long did you have that before you moved to your next venture? Well, a very long time. And I moved to my next venture while I still had the magazine. Mm-hmm. So just another example of the same story. Uh, while I was doing the magazine, and we have to take this printing back to a time when cut and paste literally meant you cut with an X-Acto knife, and then you used spray mount to paste it on a board, and then you shipped your boards to a color separator that would separate it into the four printing colors that would then make plates to send to the printer so that the printer could do it. So we had a text editing machine, a type editing machine, where we hired somebody that would literally, if you we wanted something justified, she would move each letter one at a time oh in goodness. order to justify. And if we edited an article and changed something up, she'd have to go in and remove all of those uh, letters in order to get it justified. You know, now we just push a button. People don't realize how far we've come in no, such a short time. I'm not that old. Right. <laughs> so, it right. wasn't that long ago. In any case, I was having my printing done in China because all of this that I'm talking about is very labor-intensive. And back then, it was very difficult to be able to afford to print a regional publication because you don't print very many in any given run and have the cost-benefit of the volume that, like, national magazines had. So you had to find a different solution or else I would have been out of business. Right. That was also a time when doing business with China wasn't okay. Wasn't, right, okay. And so I had had to figure out a partner in Hong Kong to Mm -hmm. use to funnel everything through so that it could, say, printed in Hong Kong. Kong, because if it said printed in China, I don't think any, I I would have had a brick through my window at the very least. Uh, You just didn't do business with a communist country Mm -hmm. back then. And so very interesting setup that I was able to create for myself. And then I thought I'm not the only person in the world that needs this solution. So I turned that into a business and I became a print brokerage firm. That is just so fascinating. So fascinating. I'm just thinking, goodness gracious, Judy. And you you didn't grow up in the printing business. You had a lot to learn, didn't you? Oh, yeah. You had so much to learn. Did you lean into subject matter experts? I mean, how did you do that? The World Wide Web was just invented. Right, right. <laughs> I laugh all the time. We've seen it'll be 25 years that Greg and I co-founded our company in May. And just thinking back, oh, my goodness, things have changed so much. Because, again... The World Wide Web had just been invented, you know, and there was no career builder. There was no LinkedIn. There there was none of these things. Not knowing anything about that business, where did you even start? The first business I didn't know anything about was printing a magazine, you know, how to design mm-hmm. a magazine, print it, distribute it. Right. Uh, and I didn't know anything about weddings either. That was the whole <laughs> point, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was not knowing about that. Uh, so it is interesting. A lot of it was trial and error. Uh, a lot of it was spending money, I don't know, necessary, not necessary, I don't know. I dug a big hole for myself. I had to climb out of financially. But it had to do with hiring very experienced people. I hired a very experienced editor. I hired a very experienced art director. These people cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I used them for the first year or so until I was able to learn from them, how do you get the best of the best? And then I had to switch and hire people that were less expensive than the best. Mm -hmm. If I had that to do over, I don't know, maybe I did that just right by learning from the best. 
On the other hand, like I said, that created a big financial hole for me to dig out of. I was able to dig out of it. In fact, all of the businesses I've ever created have been profitable within the first six months. So I've been really fortunate in that regard. But that was one way that I did it, was mm-hmm. reaching out to the experts. The subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. We say that all the time. And the expert will go right to the challenge where That's right. a generalist will take 10 trips around the barn sometimes, you That's know? Right. And the other thing is you can't always afford to let the generalist learn on the job. That's right. So you lose time. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Judy Syndicuse. Let's face it, the future is mobile. There's a good chance that you are listening to this show right now on your phone. Have you explored how you can move your business mobile too? Our mobile apps team at Technology Partners makes it their mission to move our clients into the hands of their employees and customers and change their business processes to meet the demands of their users. Let's work together and build a dynamic mobile app for your team. Go to tpi.co slash mobile apps and get the conversation started about how we can help you get your new application off the ground. Well, welcome back, Judy. Again, I'm just so excited for you to be here. I think we've got so much to talk about. This podcast could be like five hours long, (laughs) but we're not going to do that to our listeners today. But I want to talk about in 2011, you went on to found another company, Capital Innovators. So tell us a little bit about Capital Innovators. Sometimes I think the easiest way for people to understand what Capital Innovators does is to hear about the origin story. So I'll try to be brief. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) After founding a number of companies, I mean six uh, in total, I was looking for my next big idea. And while I was doing that, I started volunteering for a nonprofit here in town called I-10, the IT Entrepreneur Network. And it was while I was volunteering there that I saw that St. Louis had a number of really good companies led by some very intelligent, passionate founders but they weren't getting the funding that they needed or the mentorship that they needed to get to the next level. And so Capital Innovators is essentially a solution to a problem that I saw while I was volunteering. Mm -hmm. And it grew into what became my next big idea. So what Capital Innovators is, is an accelerator program. When I founded it, there wasn't such a thing as an accelerator program. So I didn't know that what I was creating was going to have a moniker. But once I created it, I reached out to my law school friends and asked for some mentorship for myself. Because the way the model works is we have a venture capital fund that puts the money into these companies, and then the companies go through a 12-week boot camp-style program where they receive mentorship and office space and perks and introductions and things to help them accelerate the growth of their business. Mm That's the core of Capital Innovators. Well, there's a lot packed in there. I love what you just said. You reached out for mentorship yourself. That's right. So just to that point, do we ever arrive? Oh, no. No. (laughs) Right? Never, never. Uh, I am always seeking help. I'm always asking for help. I have a list of things that I help my companies with, and one of my team members teased me about it one time and talked about dropping pearls. And so we have this page in our program book called Judy's Pearls. And one of my pearls is that human beings like to help each other. So when you need something, if you use the word help in your request, you are very likely to get that help. But importantly, you have to do the work to make it easy for them to help you. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you need an introduction 
to somebody, you should go ahead and write out potential language for an email for them to use in the introduction. State exactly who it is that you would like the introduction to. Put the email in there so that they have it you know, at the ready. Make it very easy for that person to help you. And then it allows them to have that feel-good feeling that we as humans get when we help each other. And so I eat my own dog food and I ask for help a lot. I love that. <laughs> well, and I think a good question for us is always, how can I help you? How can I help you? Not just asking That's for right. the help, That's right. but even people on your team. How could I be most helpful? And I even say that with, we've got, I've got three adult children, and I use that a lot with them. How can I help you? How can I support you right now? I love that. And we just never arrive. We've always got to continue to grow, right? And, right. And learn. So the other thing that is really packed in there, again, you were volunteering, but your eyes were open and your ears were open and you saw there's a need because, and you've talked a little bit about the difference between a founder and a leader. So let's talk a little bit about that because sometimes founders, they've got the passion, right? But they don't have always all the things that they need to make something successful. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I know with your program that you really are helping people become better leaders. And I think that that is at the core of what Capital Innovators tries to do for their founders. We try to teach them how to be a good CEO, Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the whole teach a person to fish philosophy. The program is 12 weeks long. If we were just focusing on what your problems were during these 12 weeks and trying to help you solve them, that's not going to help you become successful in the long run. Right. So what we try to do is teach them a process for how to solve these problems, which includes what we just talked about, about how to go ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a a long-term process in order to get your company to where you really want it to go in your dreams, right? So can you talk about that a little bit? Let's just talk about maybe one week. What would the first week of that boot camp look like? We have a goal session that happens where all of the founders that are currently in that boot camp together stand up in front of a group of mentors and my team. And every week they have to talk about what they accomplished last week and what they plan to accomplish this week. We talk about their biggest wins for the week and their biggest challenges. And we really try to identify, I think it's important, especially in this age of electronics, when you're doing goal setting, and it's so easy to just delete whatever your goal is, or edit it. (laughs) Yes. um, That it's really important that instead of doing that, you if you didn't hit a goal, highlight it in red and your electronic system or wherever you do this, mm-hmm. highlight that in red so that you can take the time to figure out why you didn't hit your goal. Is it because you bid off more than you can chew so that then you need to learn how to prioritize and not do that next time? If you're only getting to certain things because you're overwhelmed by the amount of work you have, but you haven't taken the time to prioritize it properly, you might be doing all the wrong things. And that's what lends itself to this idea that I know that we've all been through where we think, I'm so busy, I can't possibly put in another minute of work, and yet my business isn't getting where I want it to go. And so it's not a matter of you're not working hard, your work ethic is great, but you're not choosing the right the things right to work things. on. And I think that's one of the hardest things. I really do, because there's a lot of good things out there, but you're really teaching people from the feedback, probably, 
the best things to that, focus that's on. That's right. And that's why I say let's focus the most on the goals that didn't get met and mm-hmm. why not. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times our goals that don't get met, they're because we don't know how to do it. So we tend to procrastinate that which we don't know how to do. So back to our help thing, mm-hmm. uh, it allows you to identify, hey, if I could just learn how to do this. If you're not able to learn how to do it for whatever the constraints are, time or money, then it lets you know that you need to hire somebody, the subject matter expert like we were talking about, that does know how to do that. So it makes it much easier to spot when you're not just modifying your goals on the fly. Sure. Well, just what a gift. I'm thinking, I wish that I knew you back when Greg and I started our company 25 years ago, because uh, there was a lot that we didn't know and we didn't have a lot of people to lean into. And so a lot of it was the school of hard knocks, but that wasn't the thing 25 years ago as much. I but wish I had my program 25 years ago right, too. Exactly. I, uh, that, that's why I built this was based on the notion of what would I want as a founder? I love it. How would I want this to go? So you've got 111? 111 portfolio companies. That is a lot to keep up with, Judy. It is. (laughs) How do you keep it all straight? I have a fantastic team. Let's talk about, so this is something extra, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I know you've got a lot of something extras that you feel like leaders need. And then you've even got stories of where something extra was missing. So I'm just going to let you take it and uh, go from there. One of the things that one of the mentors in my program has been stating recently that really has made an impact on me is as a leader trying to influence your team, that sometimes the best way to be influential is to allow yourself to be influenced. And so that's going to require listening to your team members tell you how they think something should be done and actually taking their advice when it's appropriate. Then they will be much more likely to listen to you when you're explaining why you would like them to do something a certain way. So it is really, I think, the, the something extra that you ask, what does every founder or leader need is self-awareness. It's this awareness that we have strengths and we have weaknesses and knowing where to get the mentorship and knowing where to receive the influence. Mm -hmm. And I always say, you know, it takes a certain amount of humility to say, I'm not very good at that. (laughs) So I need to surround myself with people that are better than me in that particular area. And I love what you've said. You've said it a couple of times now. You have a fantastic team. Judy, you're not doing everything yourself. I mean, you have built a fantastic team around you too, right? Yeah, nobody can make it alone. Not for real. You know, you mentioned something about being open with your humility and that. And that brings me to one of the things you had asked me earlier was, what is this something extra? Do you have an example of something extra that really helped make somebody successful Mm -hmm. as a leader? And one of the things that I think is an absolute must and that I've seen in some of my founders, one in particular, is integrity. And what I mean by integrity, particularly from a founder's standpoint, is that being open and honest and candid with those who matter. So in my world, that's a founder who's talking to their investors. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, a lot of founders, because they're wanting investors to continue to write them checks so they have the money to grow their business, they will tend to only focus on what's going right in their business. And I think that's a mistake. And I have one founder in particular who is very good at constantly keeping 
his investors up to date on what's going on in his business, both the good and the bad. I was going to say, it's not just the good news. And so then there's no surprises. There's no surprises. And well, and you can get help. You can get help. That's right. You never know where the help's going to come from. So important. So when you're saying, you know, we're struggling with this, you have no idea. Maybe there's a, uh, an investor has a connection or maybe they have some expertise in an area or maybe they just have some advice. But at the very least, you're being open with them and you're saying, hey, this is what, and what he's really good at, this founder, he says, hey, this is where we've been that didn't work. This is where we've been that did work. This is what we're going to try next. This Mm -hmm. is our next test. Mm -hmm. This is where we're going next. And it just allows the investors to see how his thought process works. All startups are testing out their product market fit and what should happen. And of (laughs) course, the world changes really fast. Mm -hmm. So what was working a year or two ago may not be what's working now. And so showing the investors that you can be nimble and just being very open with them about that, I think that leads to a trustworthiness. Absolutely. And you know what the trust is? This is another thing that I talk to my companies about is I'm not just talking about trust like the opposite of trust is you maybe you're a liar. I don't think there's a lot of liars out there. People aren't lying to their investors. What I'm talking about is a trust in someone's capabilities. So we want our investors to trust in our capability to lead this company to success. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways of doing that is showing them that we can handle challenges. And that requires being open and honest, which requires that integrity. Yes. So many good things packed in there, Judy. Thank (laughs) you so much. Well, let me ask you this. Is there something coming up that you are excited about or a couple of things maybe even that you're excited about that you want to tell our listening audience about? We do have a lot going on. For one thing, we have raised two funds. You know, I talked about where Mm -hmm. all of this is managed by a venture capital fund and we're raising our third fund right now, which will help invest in a number of other companies. Our 111 companies have created over a thousand jobs so far. And so this is great, not just for the city, but for the country. So supporting this, you know, the next batch of these companies coming through is important. We just started our new cohort a couple of weeks ago, and they're doing very well. I strongly encourage all of your listeners to go visit our website and check out these founders. And here's something a little tidbit that's self-promoting um, for, uh, for the leaders that are listening out there. A lot of people have it in their head that when they need a new technology, that they have to go to Silicon Valley to go get it. But I have a secret, and that is that it's not that Silicon Valley breeds the only intelligent, <laughs> innovative people in the world. Right. They're not born there. Uh-huh. These companies are born in places like the Midwest. Like the Midwest, right. And then they move there later. So if you grab those technologies here while there's new, you get a lot out of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, For one thing, you get it cheaper. For another, you can have them build to suit exactly what your needs are. I really strongly encourage if you have a need in your business that you think can be solved by a new technology that you look in your own backyard mm-hmm. first. I agree. You don't have to go afar and spend a fortune in order to get quality technology. I agree. That is wonderful. Wonderful advice. And I've been so impressed. And you think, I mean, there are a lot of companies right now in St. Louis that started small did they not, Judy? That's right. That's I right. mean, a lot of them were born and bred here. We have a lot of really innovative and just really exciting things going on in St. Louis. So you're right. Silicon Valley does not have all the smart people. 
<laughs> we have a lot of smart people right here in the Midwest. And then the other thing that Capital Innovators is doing is we're taking a lot of this that we've learned at how to help founders of startups and taking it in-house to large corporations. Mm. So the large corporations are having a hard time maintaining their place at the head of the pack because the bigger you get, the slower your wheels turn. It's very hard to be nimble. Mm -hmm. I talked about how important it is to be nimble, to be successful. It's very hard with the world that moves so quickly now to keep up with that kind of pace. And we really feel like there's some solutions that we've come up with that can be very helpful. And a good example of that is our Ameren Accelerator Program. So for the last couple of years, we've been working with them on some innovation strategies. It's gone very well. And so that's an an exciting, fun new area for us to attack. Well, this has been just so interesting and exciting. And I just, I'm excited for our listeners to hear your story and to get plugged in more to get plugged into what's going on here. But Judy, thank you so much. I know you're really, really busy with these 111 (laughs) companies in your portfolio. So I just so appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. I really enjoyed it. Our show today is executive produced by Brian Muncy. Our technical producer is Daniel Williams. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners, Inc. 2019. For show notes or to reach out to Lisa, visit tpi.co slash podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen.